speak for 10 minutes or so each from their points of view, and then we'll throw it open uh, for questions, comments, contributions from the floor. Um, depending on what we get, I will perhaps invite the speakers to come back on the points made, or perhaps we'll just keep it as an open discussion. We'll see how it goes. Uh, and the aim is to conclude by two o'clock, perhaps with an answer to that generally, as I say, potentially provocative title of uh, offshore financial centers blessing our curse, or indeed something else if people would uh, care to contribute. So who have we got? Well, on my right, your left, uh, we have Howard Bilton, uh, chairman of the Sovereign Group, as you have seen from the publicity. And uh, Howard is uh, an example of what I see as a sort of growing trend, what I would call the international entrepreneur, uh, very widely traveled. Uh, he's uh, leads the Sovereign Group, one of the largest consultancies specializing in the provision of offshore trusts, uh, companies, general international tax advice. Uh, he is by training uh, both a barrister and uh, therefore lawyer, uh, but also a classicist. So uh, maybe he does uh, therefore travel to certain places of antiquity in his uh, efforts to uh, find offshore financial centers. Uh, spends a great deal of his time uh, on international travel, on international business, and also a uh, very strong supporter of the arts through uh, the Sovereign Art Foundation that he co-founded and which uh, has generated one and a half million dollars for supporting the arts. And if anybody is an enthusiast for wine, here is an expert on Portuguese wine, again, another of his enterprises. Uh, so even if you're not necessarily going to agree with whatever Howard says, I'm sure you could come to an agreement over a good glass of port wine. And on my left, on your right, we have John Kay. Um, anybody who has looked at all at economics will, I'm sure, agree with me that in his field, John needs no introduction. He is definitely one of Britain's leading economists. Uh, he's well, he can claim to be an academic, a businessman, an advisor to companies and governments around the world, uh, as well as a very regular columnist. And uh, certainly, if, uh, uh, I will not, not just because he's here, I'll say he's one of the things that makes me open the FT to see if he's written today, because that makes it uh, worthwhile. Uh, he has uh, long traded, as it were, in the world of economics as a fellow of St. John's College, Oxford, where he still is a fellow. Uh, but he founded a company, London Economics, a major consulting business uh, in 1986. Uh, and in many ways, that became one of the uh, consulting groups on economy. Uh, prolific writer, columnist, as I've alluded to, uh, now sp splits his time between London, Oxfordshire, and the south of France. Not quite in a tax haven, but uh, not far from a well-known offshore financial center. He tells me that that's where he sometimes draws his inspiration from as he's possibly gazing to it. So, ladies and gentlemen, our two speakers. Now, by way of preparation, we did discuss who was going to go first, and Howard kindly volunteered to go second. So, uh, if I can then, I will hand over to John Kay to say a few words for his 10 minutes worth on uh, offshore financial centers, blessing or curse. Thank you, John. One of the important points John has made is in his introduction is have that got, I don't John, have you got your microphone on? Sort of, you're, on. You're, you're picking up. 
is that I don't live in a tax haven, but I nearly live in a tax haven. I, I have a house in the south of France in Montaigne, which is really all there is of France between Monaco and Italy. Uh, I have to confess that if I was rich enough for it to be worth my while living in a tax haven, I would nevertheless choose to pay the tax and not live in a tax haven. But there are many people who've made that choice differently. And the history of Montong is actually rather strange and leads one directly into the nature of tax havens. Until 1848, Montong was actually part of the Principality of Monaco. And many of you will recall, well not recall, but no, recall from your school history, that 1848 was Europe's year of revolutions. But one of the revolutions that certainly didn't make it into my history book was the revolution in which the people of Montong revolted against Monaco. And as a result of that, for 12 years, there was the independent Republic of Montong from 1848 to 1860. That meant that the princes of Monaco lost the agricultural hinterland on which their revenues had very largely depended. And they scrambled around for alternative sources of revenue in order to keep them in the style to which they had become accustomed. What became key to this was a promoter by the name of Francois Blanc who suggested to the Prince of Monaco that they build a casino uh, on the hill opposite the Rock of Monaco, what became the Casino of Monte Carlo. And in the 1860s, the railway arrived in the south of France and brought gamblers from all over Europe to the Monaco Casino, or the Monte Carlo Casino. The reason it brought travelers from all over Europe was, of course, that in most of Europe, casino gambling was illegal. And what uh, Monsieur Blanc and the princes of Monaco had discovered was the idea that being a small, unregulated oasis in the midst of a sea of regulation was an extremely profitable business. It was something that sadly, the people of Montong failed to realize in 1860, they had the option of remaining an independent Republic of Montong, but in retrospect, deeply foolishly, they chose to attach themselves to France, with the result that they never enjoyed the prosperity which the casino brought to the, to, to the Monegasque population. Now, there are three lessons, I think, we ought to learn from this particular vignette of history. The first is that hypocrisy is at the heart of the whole concept of the tax haven and the offshore financial center. Monaco is surrounded by France. It was accessed by rich people coming, to Europe, coming from across Europe to the south of France by train. It is not difficult to think of a dozen mechanisms by which Monaco and Monte Carlo could have been prevented from, uh, from engaging in this activity. But 
the, the, the princes of the rest of Europe who wanted to take a moral stance against gambling chose not to uh, enforce sanctions against Monaco. And sanctions could be as easily enforced against Monaco today or any other tax haven as they could have been then if there were a genuine political desire to do so. So firstly, the existence of these centers is founded on the hypocrisy of the politics and rulers of the major centers. The second is that there is an element of the benign in that particular hypocrisy. What people were doing in allowing gambling to take place in Monte Carlo was they were allowing people who were sufficiently well off and sufficiently determined to go and gamble in the Monte Carlo casino, even though gambling was generally prohibited, and they maintained this prohibition uh, across the rest of Europe. And the truth is, in a whole raft of undesirable activities like gambling, alcohol, prostitution, drugs, we have the same issue that although we might like to prohibit these activities, it is not in fact possible to do so. And allowing, as it were, a safety valve in which, uh, if not actually approved, uh, evasion of the nominal prohibitions is at the very least tolerated or accepted, makes it more feasible to maintain a general policy of discouragement. So it is not necessarily the case that this hypocrisy is all bad. The third lesson of this story is that uh, being a haven of this kind, either a regulatory or a tax oasis, is a source of revenue for small states. In the case of Monaco, in the case of most of other havens, it's a very large source of revenue for small states. And it is something which needs to be pointed out when our Prime Minister and his colleagues rail against tax havens, that probably a majority of the havens of the world are either current or former British colonies. And they have gone into this particular business with the acquiescence, if not the encouragement, of the British government because it saves the British taxpayer the responsibility of subsidizing them in any other way. So it's a source of revenue for small states. It's based on a fundamental issue of hypocrisy, but it's not entirely a bad uh, uh, form of hypocrisy. Now, what do these kind of institutions do today? Well, one thing they're about, of course, is concealment. That almost all these, uh, these havens are relatively reticent about the information which they provide, some more reticent than others to the authorities of the world. And I think we can almost all agree that allowing clearly allowing criminals to route their activities through these centers, or even people who are simply evading the tax which legally they should be paying under the laws of the countries in which they live or are domiciled or whatever, that uh, concealment of this kind is something we should do our best to put a stop to. But that's only one of the things that is going on in these activities, and it's not the main thing. A lot of it is to do with uh, 
legitimate tax avoidance, i.e. tax avoidance which is not actually illegal, some of it by the, the rich individuals who live in a place like Monaco, a lot of it by international corporations which use these centers to ensure that uh, much of their profit is derived from locations in which they do not, in fact, have any substantial operations, but in which they pay relatively low tax rates. And this is an activity which is engaged in even by the most respected of large corporations with international activities. And finally, these havens are about evading regulation and of course the element of that, has been, which has been on everyone's minds in the last year or two, is that the majority of hedge funds, these complex and not very transparent investment funds, the majority of these investment funds are ostensibly located in, um, in offshore centers. In fact, the large majority of them are ostensibly located in the Cayman Islands. Although, as you will know, in fact, they're mostly located in the West End of London or in Greenwich, Connecticut. And if you ask people uh, in the bars and, uh, lunch, and lunch establishments of these places where the Cayman Islands were, I'm not sure very many of the people engaged in these activities would be able to tell you. So these activities are partly about concealment, they're partly about lawful, if perhaps undesirable, tax avoidance, and they're partly about evasion of regulation. But in recent years, the reason we're having this debate is that in the last year particularly, there's been a good deal of political noise made about the existence of these centers. The word I've used several times in what I've said so far is hypocrisy. And it is impossible to talk about this issue even for a moment without the word hypocrisy coming straight back to one's minds. And the truth is that most of this political discussion over the last year or two is crass hypocrisy. These havens are in many respects undesirable, but they are not even remotely directly associated with the global financial crisis. Uh, which we have been through. We've heard a great deal of discussion of measures against tax havens, but there is not the slightest real intention of introducing measures which would act against the kind of um, uh, measures I've described by which multinational companies uh, evade or avoid rather the tax to which a reasonable basis of their operations might potentially lend them light, but there is no genuine political intention of tackling these issues, uh, and, uh, uh, and there is equally no genuine political intention of tackling the kind of issue which arises as a result of rich individuals purporting to be resident or domiciled in centers like Monaco. What there will be, and it's certainly not a bad thing, is more pressure on these tax havens to release information about some of the individuals who, who operate through them uh, and whose activities are conducted there. The political noise, in short, is essentially hypocritical. It is designed to attract and distract attention 
from the substantive causes uh, of the global financial crisis. And perhaps the largest paradox of all in this is one of the focuses of this issue is the supposed need to bring hedge funds, which as I've noted, are very widely located in tax havens, particularly the Cayman Islands, within the scope of tighter regulation. A set of proposals which evades the central issue, which is that the major cause of this financial crisis is not these unregulated or largely unregulated hedge funds operating in offshore centers. The major cause of our current crisis is the hedge funds which operated within regulated institutions, i.e. the major banks uh, and financial institutions of Britain, the United States, and other European countries. It's the internal hedge funds that these uh, companies operated that brought them to their current, uh, the, the, their current position. So how should we conclude in relation to the motion which is before us today. Hedge funds, blessing or curse. Well, as John has said, it is very difficult, unless you're perhaps the, the Prince of Monaco, to take the view that these centers, that tax havens are a blessing. Uh, the Prince of Monaco can, so can some of the people who manage to pay less tax as a result of their, their existence. They're not an unmitigated disaster for the global economy because, I, as I've described, having, as it were, safety valves in our tax and regulatory system is by no means a bad thing. That having high taxes, which people can avoid to some extent if they're willing to go to enough trouble and inconvenience, is perhaps a hypocritical regime to have, but is not in all respects a bad regime to have. But taken on balance, I think one is bound to conclude that these activities are a curse. And one of the things which aggravates that curse rather than relieves it has been the use of these havens as, as it were, a lightning conductor to distract political attention and public anger from issues and sources at which it would be much more effectively directed. John, thank you very much indeed for your comments. Perhaps I can pass straight over to Howard for his. Thanks to John for his comments. I have to take immediate issue with one or two things you said, John. Um, firstly, that you consider alcohol an unsavory activity, which you mentioned in relation to Monaco. As a wine producer, I have to take immediate issue with that. <laughs> um, you mentioned you don't live in a tax haven and wouldn't choose to. I do, I think, live in what you might describe as a tax haven, although I might draw the attention of the audience to the fact that the debate is about offshore financial centers. Now, those two terms might be interchangeable in many people's minds, but they're certainly not in mine. Um, I live in Hong Kong. Now, is that a tax haven? Is it an offshore financial center? Or is it just a real country which happens to have a slightly lower tax rate than one next door to it? And what's objectionable to that? Perhaps we think that we should decide what rate of tax is applicable in Britain and everybody else should apply the same rate, irrespective of their needs. Perhaps we think that uh, countries without an army or an arms industry or 
other, other ways of supporting themselves should still levy the same amount of tax, even though they don't need it because they don't need to go and drop bombs on Iraq. Um, I am from, originally from an independent country, which is the Independent Republic of Yorkshire, where we're well known for calling a spade a fucking shovel. <clears throat> um, I have some quite strong views on what's right and what's not right, and I can perfectly well see the moral argument that a country which charges a lower rate of tax, which I think is the definition being applied to tax havens here and offshore financial centers, is fundamentally evil. I wouldn't agree with that. I'm supported in that view by many experts, not least of which um, was Paul O'Neill, who was initially involved in an OECD initiative um, to create a report on harmful tax competition. Now, this started back in 1996 and concluded with a report being issued in 1998, identifying what they thought, in their view, were tax havens, which were characterized by a lack of exchange of information, which John referred to uh, as another evil, where you cannot understand what's going on in a financial center, but um, more importantly, low rates of tax. <clears throat> and the focus on the report was that anybody with a low rate of tax, and by that, at that time, they meant lower than France and the US, who had um, commissioned this report, was fundamentally being unfair. Boo-hoo. So the idea was that by charging less tax, they would attract investment away from France and the US and other OECD countries to the detriment of the OECD countries. And that view was prevalent at the time, so they were being really unfair by doing this. Um, one might argue that perhaps a country is being unfair by having a nice climate because it makes people go and live there. People should be free to set their own rates of tax and compete. And, compete. and in fact, shortly after the initial draft of the report, um, Paul O'Neill came forward and uh, basically squashed it for the time being by saying, and I will quote, the United States does not support efforts to dictate to any country what its own rates or tax system should be and will not participate in any initiative to harmonize world tax systems. The US simply has no interest in stifling the competition that forces governments like businesses to create efficiencies. Countries do compete in very many ways. They compete in terms of their public services, the roads, the trains, the health service, um, climate, ease of living, lack of regulation, they all try and attract investment. Tax is just one factor in, in, that, in that method of competing and trying to attract investment. Countries which have a low rate of tax should not be singled out as being fundamentally evil because of that. That is my firmly held view. The second point is that we need to try and define what is a tax haven and which countries are that. Um, the, London, the City of London Fourth Global Financial Centres Index says there are only two really truly global financial centres and those are London and New York. It doesn't define offshore or tax havens, it just says financial centres. Now, London attracts very many wealthy individuals with its non-domicile tax regime, which has been a lot of comment about. It gives companies tax breaks in very many and different ways. 
and tries to compete in, in that way. New York the same. It is quite easy to set up a USA company which pays no tax whatsoever in the US. Now, there may be other rules around the world which make the revenues of that company taxable back in their own country, but the same rules apply as would apply to a company set up in the Cayman Islands, for example. So there is very little fundamental difference in many ways between what Cayman offers, what London offers, and what New York offers. And if you look down the City of London fourth global financial centers index, we find that after London, New York, the most important financial centers in the world are Singapore, which again may be termed offshore, Hong Kong, maybe offshore, Zurich, probably offshore, Geneva, probably offshore. After that, looking down the list, Dublin is the 13th, Jersey 14th, Luxembourg 15th, Beijing, one of the world's most important cities, is only 47th, Mumbai is only 49th. So are we saying that these countries, these cities, or whatever, you, or these states are all fundamentally evil, so the whole world is fundamentally evil. We should, perhaps we are saying we should never compete in financial terms with each other. We should apply one uniform rate of tax across the world and just leave it at that. Well, it's an argument, but it's not one that's ever really going to hold sway, and it's not realistic. So given it's not realistic, there is no particular reason why the Cayman Islands, which doesn't require much tax revenue and doesn't charge tax, is fundamentally evil, and London and New York are not. <clears throat> there was a time, and I would go along with John's comments, where these tax havens and offshore financial centers existed to hide money, and where people could salt away fortunes and there was lack of transparency. That is well and truly out of date. Um, the tax havens John refers to are better regulated than the onshore centres about which he spoke or about which we are talking. If you wish to go and set up a company in the Isle of Man or the Cayman Islands, for whatever purposes you wish to do that, you have to use a licensed practitioner. He can only obtain a license by proving his credentials, submitting regular reports, and basically showing that he's a professional person who will operate to the highest standards. The same is not true in London or New York. Anybody forming companies for other individuals does not have to be licensed or regulated. So in that aspect, at least, the regulation is stronger offshore than it is onshore. The OECD has been bullying these smaller states through various measures and requiring them to enter into exchange of information agreements, which means that any and all information about companies, trusts, structures set up in their jurisdictions is obtainable upon request. All of these jurisdictions have now signed tax information exchange agreements with most of the developed world. So whereas it might have been true that there was confidentiality and secrecy offshore, the reverse is now true. There is less confidentiality and less secrecy offshore than there is onshore. These days, if the tax man in the UK wishes to find out who has formed a Cayman Island company and what's going on with that, he has to be able to do that. He can make a request to the Cayman Island authorities for information about that structure, and the information must come back. They would obtain it by contacting the licensed practitioner who formed the structure who must have that information on file and must supply it on request. No information, you're out of business. Again, greater regulation than onshore.
Now, whether that leads to any tax consequences for the person who set up that company uh, remains to be seen. Most practitioners offshore would argue that they are setting up structures which operate legitimately within their own rules and take account of the legitimate rules within the other countries. The UK and developed countries throughout the world already have legislation which allows them to tax the undistributed profits of a low tax company set up in another country. If they, if they can do so, they will do so. The law exists allowing people to tax in various ways and just because your money is in another country doesn't mean it necessarily escapes tax in this country. If you as an individual set up an offshore company in Cayman, you will be charged a tax on its profits, whether you receive them or not. So tax cannot be your primary focus in doing that. There must be other legitimate reasons. John mentioned the hedge fund world, which does naturally gravitate towards Cayman Islands. This is not because of the lack of regulation, because they are regulated. It's not because of any secrecy, because there is no secrecy. It's not because of the low tax, because generally speaking, the promoters of those hedge funds are resident in high tax countries, and that hedge fund will be brought into tax because of that fact. It's because they have an easy, simple system. Lawyers who are very used to forming these entities quite cheaply and with a minimum of fuss no stamp duty on share trades and a variety of other commercial reasons. It could be that there is a tax advantage there in addition to that, but if it is, because this is a high-profile structure, it's going to have to be done legitimately, and it's not about hiding money offshore. So there is a lot of misconceptions about what these financial centers do. The motion before us is whether they are a blessing or a curse. <clears throat> I don't think it's possible to say that they are a curse insofar as all they have done is decide that they wish to go into business in a certain manner. They've set low rates of tax across the board because they don't need to raise large amounts of tax revenue. We could say to them, I suppose, sorry, that's being unfair, you must charge a lot more tax. I don't think that's a very fair or legitimate position to assume. We could say to residents of the UK or companies in the UK, sorry, you're not allowed to set up businesses abroad in any shape or form, or you're only allowed to set up businesses in very high tax countries, so we'll let you go and incorporate a subsidiary in India if you wish to do business there because they have a high rate of tax. But we won't let you invest in Hong Kong or Singapore because they don't charge those high rates of tax. So that would be really naughty, wouldn't it? And that would be being unfair to other people because you might be paying less tax in those countries than you would if you went incorporated in a high tax country. I think most people would agree that the free movement of capital, labor, and investment is a good idea and is a fundamental freedom that we have here. If we agree with that proposition, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be going to lower tax countries and investing in those as well as investing in anywhere else we wish. So fundamentally, I don't think they are a curse in any shape or form. Um, tax havens have not for many, many years, although again, I'd probably agree with John that in the past they may have existed to assist criminals, a point John made. The regulation in these countries 
is such that it would be very difficult for a criminal to hide his money in these places. Much better to do it in New York or London, where vast amounts of money moving in a very quick manner will not draw attention. Um, I can assure you, having worked in many of these places, that to move money around the banking system of the Bahamas, Jersey or Alaman is a lot more difficult than to move it around the banking system of London or Hong Kong or New York. So, again, a misconception, I think, about what is going on there. I would urge you to support my side of the argument, which is that these places, if not a blessing, are harmless and necessary, or at least should be allowed to exist without interference from the big bully boys on shore. Thank you. Howard, thank you very much. So there you are, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, John's point of view, it's very difficult to sum it all up briefly, isn't it? But uh, hypocrisy rules or is a major influencer, uh, perhaps, and uh, a key thing, but they're there. Howard's saying, well, they're regulated pretty well and uh, they're there. So we have an opportunity for you to make contributions, ladies and gentlemen. We have a microphone at the back, so does anybody care to chip in with a question, a comment? Hands up and the microphone will come to you. Lady there, please. I ask this question with extreme trepidation because uh, I have tried to grapple with economics in a sort of amateur way for years and years and years and give up uh, regularly. However, um, bearing that in mind that the question comes from a, a complete amateur, um, my reason for being here is that um, I'm a Christian AIDS supporter and attended a, a workshop last week about their big tax return campaign, which is precisely to do with tax havens, or they prefer to call them something else, but I forget what, I forget what uh, but something more um, derogatory. Um, and their concern is the effect that these offshore um, havens have on uh, the poor countries of the world and how multinationals can sort of shift their profits around in a rather uh, dishonest way, um, in an unrealistic way, so that they avoid paying tax in, say, the country where they mined something, you know, the poor country where they mined something and don't pay anything much in the tax haven and then sell it on to somewhere where they claim they've made no profit again. Uh, and I'd just like to know your comments on whether that's the, uh, a, a reasonable thing to be campaigning about before I start doing so. So your basic point is that because the havens are there, that facilitates companies, particularly companies rather than individuals, squirrelling profits away and not declaring the profits in Angola to Zimbabwe, wherever it is in the third world. Do you think, John, that the havens do facilitate this behaviour? Are they a problem? Um, do, do multinational companies pay low rates of average tax on their activities around the world uh, gi given where they're operating and the scale and profitability of their operations? Yes, they do. Uh, is this, are, are tax havens an important element in contributing to that? Yes, they are. Is this an important issue as far as poor countries are concerned? I do not think it is. I do not think it is because the instance which you describe 
which is that of mining and resources, is actually probably the principal potential source of revenue from multinational companies for poor countries. And that is part of what is relatively well taxed. The truth is that the main loss of tax revenue which results from these kind of activities is not to poor countries, it is to developed countries. Uh, and if one were to address that issue, and I would like to address that issue, it's primarily on behalf of developed countries that one would actually do so. So if I was uh, campaigning on behalf of Christian Aid, I don't know the details of the, the particular campaign which you describe, but to be honest, I think there are many more important issues to pursue than this particular one. Howard, thank you. Do you have a comment on that? Um, yes, I think um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly oversimplistic idea to think that a multinational invests in a poor country and doesn't pay any tax there. Um, that country will have rules which dictate how profits are calculated and what tax must be paid on them. And without any detailed knowledge of the company in question, one presumes that it's quite within the remit of that country to recalculate the profits if it thinks that it's not getting its fair share of the pie. More likely, there is an investment being made there which takes many years to be paid back, so there is no profit, because if there was profit, they'd be paying tax on it. Shifting profit in the way that you've mentioned is, is not a simplistic thing to do. There are rules which exist to prevent it, and presumably, if they were doing it in the blatant way you describe, or, or the way that's inferred, that those rules would come to bear and readjust the figures. But there's another issue as well, because, again, businesses will not invest unless they can get a fair return on their money. It doesn't matter whether you and I agree whether it's a fair return, whether you think they're being greedy, or whether you think they're being unfair, but in their mind, they need to have a fair return. If they can do something towards planning a lower tax bill than they otherwise would have, they're more likely to invest. So there is an argument that, well, if you didn't let them do something along the lines of what you're suggesting, they wouldn't invest there in the first place, which probably wouldn't suit that country at all. So maybe better to have the investments and accept that there's a lower tax bill going to result from it than not have the investment at all, not have the jobs it creates, not have the wealth it creates into the system. Now, I don't, I'm not a multinational company. I wouldn't know how they make these decisions, but you can be sure that that's one of them. They'll look at the return that they can get, and if it isn't sufficient, they won't invest at all. So you can say, right, okay, well, we're going to calculate our tax on the basis of revenue, so we won't allow any deductions or any expenses. Nobody's going to invest under those circumstances. You say, okay, we'll allow these certain things as deductions and expenses which come off profit. Maybe they think that's reasonable, it encourages them to invest. But it's not a simplistic thing that somebody just goes in there, makes loads and loads of money and pays no tax. It's not really possible to do that. I think for my own part, I'd just comment that an awful lot of these companies go in and pay not so much taxes, but an awful lot of contribution to the infrastructure or development of the country. They may not pay direct taxes. Another observation is that one form of overseas aid that is very effective for a developing country is to improve the quality of the tax service that is there and make sure that operates properly. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't argue in any shape or form that people shouldn't pay tax. What level of tax is debatable. But there is definitely a competition in the whole world to attract 
business investment and wealthy individuals to go and live there. And if you're not prepared to play that and get into that competition, you'll soon find that you have no businesses and no wealthy individuals. So an example of this, which has caused much um, division in the UK, is when they started raising the taxes on those non-domiciled persons who are typically, or by no, that's no, by no means always the case, wealthy individuals from another country who settle in Britain and they are taxed on a different basis. So it would be possible for one of these gentlemen to come here, have income which would generally be taxable if you were UK resident and domiciled in a hundred million pounds and pay very little tax on it. They might still be paying several million pounds in tax, which is an awful lot more than the tax on the average wage of Britain, which I found earlier today, courtesy of John, was £26,000, which I would guess generates a tax bill of somewhere between five and £10,000. So they may be paying several million pounds, but they're not paying the same percentage. They're not paying 25%. So the argument is, do you want the several million pounds, even though the effective rate of tax on the worldwide income may be 5% or below? Or do you say, that's not fair, I want my 40%, in which case that gentleman says, no thanks, I'll go and live in Monaco where I pay none. Now, we're seeing evidence of the effect of this in that the government has decided it's going to tax these people more heavily, not to a great extent, I'll admit, but it's made the rules so complicated and unfathomable and they feel as though they're under attack. And they've just decided, well, we came here on a certain deal. That deal no longer exists. We've been told that we're no longer welcome in our view, so we're leaving. Now, there are large numbers of these people leaving. Property prices, we've just done a survey um, of offshore areas or what might be called tax havens. I need some more questions, so we'll come they've back to that. They've gone up remarkably. The net result to you as we sit here in the UK tax system is our tax bill is going to have to go up to compensate. John, can we make a distinction, which I think is quite important, between the different societies making different choices about the level of tax and expenditure which they have? And I think no one would see there as being a problem in Denmark deciding it will have relatively high tax rates, relatively extensive social benefits, and a relatively well-developed public infrastructure, and the United States deciding that as a society it wishes to have lower tax rates, lower social choice, lower social expenditure, and less expenditure in public infrastructure. No one could sensibly dispute the, the, the legitimacy of these societies uh, making these kind of choices. But the Prince of Monaco did not decide that his citizens were specially responsible and therefore Monegasques should be allowed to gamble even though the residents of France and Germany were not to be allowed to write, had made the decision that they should not be allowed to gamble. Equally, hedge funds are not located in the Cayman Islands because the Cayman Islands are a particularly favorable location for the people who run hedge funds. No, the, the, the substantive operations of these hedge funds do not take place within the Cayman Islands. No one, no one can think that for a moment. The majority of the people who gamble 
uh, in the citizen in the casinos of, of Monte Carlo are not residents of Monaco. In fact, when the casino was first opened, residents of Monaco were actually not allowed to gamble in that casino. They were people who were attracted from other European countries. There is a, a large difference between countries making different choices about the nature of the society they want and countries making a deliberate choice to attract activities or not even the real activities, the appearance of the activity, away from other countries by offering re regimes of regulation or of taxation, which are miles different from the ones that prevail in the countries where the people, where the businesses are in fact conducted, or the people are in fact substantively resident or derive their income. That is a distinction which is blurred in what has been said, which is not absolutely clear-cut, but it's a distinction which needs to be made and there's a distinction which is at the heart of this particular debate. Oh, thank you. Let's take some comments from the floor. Right. Uh, this is addressed mostly, I suppose, at, um, at Howard's point. Is there not a difference? You were talking about tax competition and um, choosing to apply lower rates in order to get investment. Is there not, therefore, a difference between, for example, trying to attract online gaming, as they do in the Isle of Man, by creating the infrastructure to support that, so that the servers are there, the offices are there, there is actual physical presence there, genuine investment, genuine employment. It's a big difference between that and to take what used to be the example, the fact that everyone in Sark was a director of about 40 companies and simply did what everybody told them to do. And, and could I just, the, the other point very quickly to add, given that we're in a church and there's a faith perspective, um, Deuteronomy tends to say that uh, things can be both a blessing and a curse depending on how you react to them. So maybe we ought to amend the motion to say that tax havens or offshore financial centres are both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Before I ask them, our speaker to respond. I'm conscious of time. Do we have any other comments or questions from the floor? Gentlemen and lady there, let's take a couple more comments before we ask the speakers to respond generally. Yeah, I think there was uh, some disingenuous in, in, in disingenuousness in, uh, in what Howard was, was saying, and I mean, and it can be summarized in, um, in a quote I once heard, that the only thing worse than not, than being exploited by a transnational company is not being exploited by one because if they're not there you, 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 know, Oscar you, you, you don't have say, the, yeah. um, the, <laughs> the um, you know the investment and so on it, I mean it does come back to me and hopefully in this place to some degree of question about morality what is going on here what are the values that are operating is there something called the common good um, and if so, what do these operations contribute to that? Because I think that the, 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 the bottom, what sours a lot of public life, both in this country now and internationally, is that some people are making a great deal of money out of this system and avoiding paying their tax, which the rest of us have to pay in order to provide the public services which they also want to use. Um, and and if, if that's so, then you know, something needs to be done about it, otherwise there is a very sort of um, deep um, uh, hole, as it were, in, in the pub public morality, which is not a good thing. Okay, thank you. And lady, just a little further on, we'll take two more comments, then perhaps we'll ask for... 
Um, reports have shown that the developing world loses more through tax dodging and particularly through transfer mispricing um, in multinational companies than they actually receive in aid. Um, the G20 have already ensured that by the end of 2009, the developing countries are going to be able to um, benefit from new cooperative tax, um, the new uh, cooperative tax environment. But do you agree that in order for developing countries to actually benefit from that, that there needs to be um, a multilateral um, agreement for automatic exchange of tax um, information? Automatic tax information. And one more comment from lady up here. I mean, it does seem to be the way it's going to be uh, certainly tax information agreements, but your point is that it should be automatic and presumed. Yes, I just wanted to say that, um, that there is a, a, a view, um, again, I'm not an economist, so I'm speaking from a not, not from an expert perspective, but there is a view that countries or uh, re regimes where um, uh, that there's a, a smaller gap between rich and poor do better overall than you know, jurisdictions where there's a larger gap between rich and poor. And my, my difficulty perhaps with t t tax um, havens and offshore financial centers and s so on is that they do contribute towards this uh, wider gap between the, the very rich and, and, um, and the poorer members of the um, world community. Um, and um, yes, and I, I don't think it is, as a number of people have pointed out, so much a question of countries setting tax rates. Yes, of course, countries must be free to set tax rates. The um, difficulty, as I think people have pointed out, and I'd just like to my comment is to do with the sort of complex structures that people are able to set up in tax havens um, which um, which are highly artificial and which are often not purely to do with the rules in the tax haven they're often to do with the interaction between you know the, the, the relatively um, relaxed re regimes and tax havens interacting with uh, particular tax rules in other countries, so it's that interaction which often creates the opportunity for tax um, avoidance, legitimately, yeah. but, you know, it, it's... It, that, that, it's that's the structure that contributes yeah. to it, yeah. Anyway, th thank you. Thank you. Perhaps I can pass back to first Howard and then John for a sort mm. of final comment and sort of summary and wrap-up, and perhaps if you want to reflect to uh, any of the points that have been made, the... Uh, um, um, yeah, I mean, the, Clark and unfairness. And there is there is clearly a distinction between complex arrangements which have no commercial purpose other than to avoid tax, and arrangements which facilitate investment and have a proper part to play in any company's structure. And uh, this gentleman here made a good point that you wouldn't object to people physically relocating to the Isle of Man, but you might object to somebody just setting up a company there for tax reasons. And yes. But there are rules which deal with this. Things are not quite as simple as it might be reported or, or, or where the headlines um, might portray. Generally speaking, without substance, any sort of tax arrangement fails fundamentally anyway. So we, we've got that to contend with. We also have very complicated anti-avoidance rules which attempt to deal with these situations and draw the line between what is unacceptable and what is acceptable. So those rules already exist. Now, of course, you can argue that they don't go far enough because people are still setting up companies in these tax havens. Um, of course, that's an argument, and to some extent, I'd probably agree with it. But there are legitimate purposes, uh, legitimate reasons for using these purposes. And the reverse argument, I would say, is true. You could, 
you could rule out anybody forming a structure of any description in a country with a low tax rate, and then we've got to decide what's a low tax rate. We can stop people relocating to Monaco because it's got a low tax rate. We can stop all tourism to Monaco because they have gambling and we don't like gambling. We can stop people going to Holland because you're allowed to smoke dope in a cafe and we don't agree with that. You can try and apply a global set of rules, but I don't think that's realistic or desirable. And if you're not going to do that, then places with lower tax rates will exist and should be allowed to exist. Of course, one of the challenges is how do you, do you control them if you need to? You can't. You know, in the 19th century, you would have sent a gunboat and shelled the capital. Nowadays, that's not quite on, is it? John. I use the word hypocrisy quite a lot in what I had to say to begin with, and I want to repeat that word frequently in what I want to say in, uh, on summing up, because actually this debate is characterized by hypocrisy of all kinds and at all levels. Anyone is kidding themselves if they don't accept and understand, for example, that multinational companies are able to organize their international activities in such a way as they pay materially less tax than they typically would if there were small, simple companies operating within a single jurisdiction. That is simply a fact, and they employ very large corporate tax departments whose primary objective is to achieve that. When I say this is, it's hypocrisy, first of all, not to acknowledge that. It's also hypocrisy not to acknowledge that there is a great deal that could be done about that if there were a political will to do so. There is not, in fact, a political will to do so. And actually, the jurisdictions which mainly lose out as a result of this are not, in my view, poor countries. They are uh, the countries of the developed world which are choosing not to upset large companies by taxing them more effectively than, the, than they currently do. I think, as I said at the beginning, a certain amount of hypocrisy in these kind of areas is probably acceptable, perhaps even desirable. It acts as a kind of safety valve for our, uh, the sometimes excessive consequences of our moral indignation. But I think uh, that kind of safety valve can be taken too far and has been taken too far. I don't want, actually, to structure the British tax system in such a way by the rules of non-domicile residents which have been described. I don't want to structure the British tax system in such a way that the crooks of the world or people who if they engaged in these activities in the UK would be regarded as crooks choose to live in expensive houses around the centre of London. If a number of these people start to pack their bags and go as a result of measures to tax them more effectively, then I for one will not shed many tears and I do not think many people in this room will or should so shed many tears either. We need to be a bit less hypocritical about, uh, about all of this, and uh, we need to say a bit more about the way in which we want our tax system to reflect accurately the values we hold in our society. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I suspected from the outset this wasn't a debate we would finish today in the hour we had available. We'd probably just scratch the surface. I suspect we could carry on all afternoon. But uh, I think you've heard some very interesting points and thank you for your contributions. But can I just conclude by thanking, on your behalf, John Kay, Howard Bilton for their contributions and their uh, comments today and perhaps you could show your appreciation for those. And thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us, and uh, do join us at the next such event.